You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. This week, I'm podcasting a two-part conversation I had on March 18, 2006, with comic book legend Harvey Picard, author of American Splendor. In the second part of the conversation, we talked about his time on The Letterman Show, his upcoming revival of the American Splendor comics, his new books, and find out when he'll stop worrying about money. From the Agony Column podcast, I'm Rick Clevel, and now part two of my conversation with Harvey Picard. When you're writing about everyday life, comics, which, as you pointed out, started out dealing entirely in the fantastic, superheroes, space, monsters, all sorts of weird stuff, don't necessarily leap to mind as a method of discussing the quotidian everyday life. And so tell us a little bit about how you use, I think, and I've seen it in your work, you let the fantastic edge in a bit into the art to, to, as a way to get at some of the emotions of everyday life. Yeah, I mean, there are some people that have cartoony styles that work with me, and they're, they're influenced very strongly by traditional cartoonists. Then on the other hand, I have some people that don't have any kind of comic book experience at all, or very little. They, they're like, I used to work with these art students who were into drawing a lot, and illustration and stuff like that, but not cartoons. So I, I, I had a, a variety of, of work done for me, illustration work done for me. As a writer, when you're writing for comics, you have to develop a, a different prose style than you do, say, when you're writing for reviews. It's a lot leaner. It, tell us a little bit about honing your prose for the comics. Well, I, I like the fact that comics <clears throat> are kind of an economical way to tell a story. Although my stuff can get kind of wordy because, I mean, before I was a comic writer, I was a prose writer, and I was I was used to writing a lot. But, you know, over the years, like, learned how to time uh, comic book stories, you know, like by putting in maybe just a few words in one panel and a whole lot in the next one or something, you know, like setting the reader up, or even by non-dialogue panels where there's no no words in the panel at all. And so that, that sort of creates a kind of a pause. It's like in music, it would be the equivalent of a rest. And and then, you know, and then I, you sure, know, maybe... the weight you know, of prose versus the weight of the art on the page. They create a different density. Yeah. And there's a sense of balance, too, in your work that the, the visually and textually it flows, that the reader is just moved through the panels. Okay. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about lettering. One of the things I noticed in the ego and hubris was you have a lot of words in boldface. Is this you doing this? Is this the letter, the uh, no, artist? No, mostly, mostly. I, I, I don't really put, uh, I don't have real strong f- feelings about putting stuff in boldface or not putting stuff in boldface. So usually whoever letters the thing, I, I let them do like, you know, as long as they don't get absurd about it, I let them do whatever they feel like doing. If you use boldface too much, you tend to over-dramatize things. We're in a new world as far as biography and autobiography go these days. We, with the internet, there's people out there right now 
who are creating an incredibly detailed timeline of your life, maybe more detailed than even you have. And they're ready to publish at the drop, they're able to publish at the drop of a pin any deviation from reality that you, that happens in your comics. Yeah. How do you feel about how real you have to be? And does the comic medium allow you a little more wiggle room than, say, a straightforward memoir? I don't think it would make any difference. I mean, if if I were using, if I were writing a main, a, bi, a autobiographical prose piece about myself, and I thought that in in a few, mostly I would try and be as accurate as I possibly could, but in in there would be times like maybe when I would want to do something as simple as change a person's name so that they, they wouldn't get embarrassed or something like that. And I don't have any problem doing that. Like my wife one time, she, I, have a, I had a foster kid, and my wife hated her father. When we went to do a story about them, she, she disliked them so much that she changed his, she had a, his, his person changed from the artist who was doing my work, who was the guy who was in his 60s and living in Missouri, to her father so that people thought that her father was gainfully employed and not just this, you know, kind of bum. I mean, I occasionally do that. Uh, it was done in the movie. They did it with, without really telling me about it. And I kind of wished that they hadn't done it, but it didn't, you know, matter that much. Um, How much do you respond to the demands of your fans? You must well, get a lot I, of mail with a lot of yeah, I correspondence. Get, I get a lot of correspondence, but mostly it's it's all you know positive stuff, and they don't tell me to do something different. They just they tell me how much they like what I'm doing. I do have to respond also though to editors. My comics for a real long time didn't sell well, and when they did start selling well, it took the impetus of a well, it was a pretty popular movie to make them sell well and to bring them. Bring me to uh, the public's attention. This is the so, American Splendor movie? Yeah, right. Oh, okay. And editors have a lot of pressure on them, and publishers have a lot of pressure on them to make money. So, I, you know, I had been self-publishing, and, you know, nobody was telling me anything about what to do. I just did what I felt like doing. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, what got you the acclaim. Yeah, and, and I still pretty much do because they they respect me and they think I know what I'm doing but I I'm I'm starting to run into problems like to give you an example one I I'm re, I'm reviving my American Splendor comics you know the ones that you know that that came out in comic book forms not the so-called graphic novels mm-hmm. I'm reviving that series and writing new stories for it mm-hmm. and I'm putting in the kind of story I used to put in my old American Splendor books, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, some of these... uh, Some of these stories... Well, one of them in particular, I wrote a real long story about a guy who was a friend of mine, and he was was featured. I was in the thing, but he was featured. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd done stuff like that before in my own comic books, and I never got any negative feedback about it. Mm Mm-hmm. But I got a problem. You know, this guy from DC Comics said, no, we can't use this. It's a good story. 
but people want to know about you. You've got to be the major figure. And, you know, especially in a story like this, which is a pretty long story. Is this the Michael Malice story? No, no, no. This this is a, a short story that hasn't been published yet. Okay. <laughs> I hope I hope it gets published someday. I, I mean, I was counting on it going into the into the new American Splendor series, but these guys are telling me they don't want to put it in there because because I'm not in it enough. And this is not an uncommon problem when art and commerce meet, that the people who are writing the checks and receiving yeah. the checks are somewhat clueless as to the appeal of of what they're selling. Yeah. Well, what I what I as a first step, the way I'm trying to get around it is I have more than one publisher, and rather than have a fit because they didn't want to print this one story, I'll take it to another publisher, and usually I can get it. You know, if I s- send it to about three or four publishers, one of them's gonna yeah, one of them will take it, and so I'll get I'll I'll get the thing done. You know, I must admit I don't I don't particularly like editors telling me s- stuff like that that I have to feature myself almost all the time. And I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with writing about somebody else. Well, the idea that you, that brought you to the forefront is innovation. And in a sense, you're just trying to keep innovating. Well, yeah, I'm trying to do st- stuff that's different anyway. Right. One thing that's interesting to me is your relationship with celebrity. Tell us a little bit about how you feel as you become a celebrity how you feel as you see yourself portrayed by celebrities and this kind of conflict and contradiction in that you live in a very ordinary life and have enjoyed that ordinary life and and have indeed done well for yourself by just talking about an ordinary life. Yeah. Now you find yourself outside of that. Well, it's not as much of a problem as you may think because I, I live a pretty insular life. You know, I, I just... I don't I don't really go out much and I don't see a lot of different people. Now they're sending me out on this book tour, but I don't I don't particularly like to do this kind of thing, you know, go around and get interviewed and and you know, travel to four different cities in four, in 4 days and have to put up with the hassle of flying on an airplane, which I really don't like. I mean, the red tape involved with it and the fact that the planes are, you know, sometimes late and if they're late, it can have really some serious consequences. You know, it can screw up a few days. I don't really run across that many people who know who I am, or else I run across people who have known me all my life, and they all my life they've known I've done these comics, so they, you know, they don't treat me any differently. I didn't feel particularly weird about, say, Paul Giamatti playing me in the movie, because I had already been portrayed by a number of illustrators. And I had already had my stuff done, adapted for plays three times. So I'd seen myself played by actors. So it didn't, it didn't really faze me that much. One of the things that they, they mentioned prominently on your book jackets is the Letterman deal. Yeah. I, I've never watched the show, so I don't know much about it. But tell me a little bit about how you got on there and why it's such a big deal. Okay. The way I got on the thing in the first place was Letterman has a, at one time, we're talking 1986, had a head writer who came from Cleveland. And although I didn't know him, he knew my work. And he really liked it, and he tried to get me on Letterman's show. But they said they needed a tape of me on TV, you know, to make sure I wouldn't, 
you know, go to go all the pieces. You know, they wanted to see that I at least had some kind of composure. So, I, you know, where was I going to go on on TV? So I just figured this this was never going to happen. But that year, I went to the San Diego Comic Convention and they set up something to publicize their convention where I did go on TV. I was screwing around with this DJ who. Or, or this, uh, the master of ceremonies who used to be a DJ in Cleveland, and, you know, so I knew more about him than most people would that were in my position. And um, so we were clowning around, and we were pretty funny. And I sent, I got a copy of the tape, and I sent it to Letterman, and Letterman approved of it, and I went on his show. And the first couple of times I went on his show, I did like a parody of the Cleveland working man, the Cleveland working stiff, the the Rust Belt character, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, the dummy. And it went over real well. But then I, you know, I didn't want to do that all the time. I wanted to do, I wanted to do comedy, but I, I didn't want to just be stereotyped. And I, I just asked Letterman about it and he basically refused. I mean, he wouldn't give me a, no, you can't do this, but he'd, he'd you know, avoid the questions and stuff and sidestep them. And, and uh, meantime, as a result of being on his show, my comics were not selling more. I thought they would, but they weren't. And I was not getting much money. I was getting union minimum. So I figured, what am I doing on this show? I'm going up there. I'm doing a self-parody every every time I go up there, which I, I really don't want to do, which I'm tired of doing. And um, this show is really worthless to me. How can I make it worth something to me? And I thought, well, you know, I could create a, sort of a scandal or a, something like that. And, and so what did what you I, do? So what I did was, around the time I started going on Letterman show, General Electric bought NBC, mm-hmm. and I thought that that was a conflict of interest there. That GE, you know, had had been a contributor of, I mean, had been a, a maker of parts for nuclear weapons and other, you know, military equipment. They had been convicted many, many times of breaking antitrust laws. I just felt that they shouldn't be trusted mm-hmm. to own. Uh, you know, a company that included NBC News, the public airwaves. Yeah, I thought that I thought that there was too much, too much trouble for them to defraud the public or or to you know give the public wrong information for their own profit. I I built up a case. You know, I went to the library and I did a, a lot of research on on GE and I came back to Letterman and I said, look, we're going to talk about GE tonight you know, and how about its effect on NBC, its bad effect on the general public. If we, if you don't want to talk about it with me, then I'll just shout it over you, you know, and <laughs> I'll just create chaos. So he said, okay, okay, we'll talk about it, we'll talk about it. So then he has one of his flunkies come down and give me a list of, you know, 10 subjects that we're going to talk about that night. And this is, you know, the GE thing is number seven. Well, we know we don't get around around to anything like seven topics uh, usually in the 10 minutes that I'm on there. So I knew they were just trying to, you know, 
Sasha, yeah. Yeah, play, placate me. And then they say, well, gee, we just we, we ran out of time. Sorry. Mm-hmm. We went through my first five-minute segment, and I asked Letterman some questions, which would lead us into a discussion uh, about GE, which he was making fun of also. Mm-hmm. But he was making fun of, like, the quality of their light bulbs and stuff like that, you know. Right. Not, not anything serious. He stayed away from GE. And in, in the second, my second segment, I just... I said, "All right, David. You know, I'm gonna now. I'm gonna talk about GE, and you're not gonna stop me." And uh, I just started shouting all these, you know, objections I had to GE. You know, like, <laughs> you know, point by point. You mm-hmm. know? And he's getting real upset and saying, "Well, you're. It's like you're coming into my house and you're and you're spitting in the orchids. You know, or you know, like you're." I, you know, I'm saying it's not your house. You know, it's, you know, this isn't your house. And we, we, we were going on and, you know, screaming at each other. The audience liked it a lot. I don't know if they exactly knew what was going on. <laughs> but uh, afterward, you know, everybody thought that that would be it for me, that I would never appear on Letterman show again. And I figured I went out in a blaze of glory, so it was okay. But he did have me back, you know, several more times. And I did do this kind of thing again it made me look like a kind of a hero you know the little guy fighting giant corporation you know mm-hmm. and uh so they you know they and it inc- made you feel like a hero yeah so you finally of, got I your mean, comic book triumph so i you know um the the people that wrote the uh, script for the american splendor movie you know were pretty aware of that and and they put in that that whole sequence of of my you know appearances with letterman in the in the film make me look like a working man's hero or something like that or yeah well so you had your moment of superhero triumph yeah i had i had uh yeah that really worked out real well for me because you know i mean that was <laughs> people reacted very favorably to that uh, that's great yeah. all right let's talk a little bit about michael malice and yeah. ego and hubris this is okay this is your latest work it's right. not about you no. It's a biography, not an autobiography. Right. Uh, tell us a little bit about the writing process here, because you're writing the story. The story's by you. He's telling it to you. Did you sit down with a tape recorder or just listen and? Well, most of the information I I I, I talked to him and uh, you know when I initially got to know him. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, he lives in New York and I live in Cleveland, so you know we can't see each other on a day to day basis. So we just talked about how he would convey information to me about the, the details of his life. And, and it was mostly, he just wrote me text pieces about it. Mm-hmm. He's not a nice guy. A lot of people don't think he is. He seems like, I mean, he comes off as kind of a jerk. Yeah, some people think he is. Yeah. Uh, what made you want to write about him? Because he was a real interesting character, and... Um, I, I just thought uh, when I when I first met him, I couldn't make sense of him. I mean, he had positions, you know, like a, in on politics that just seemed to be contradictory, or just didn't seem, you know, one didn't seem to fit in with another. In other words, he he just didn't fit into any category that I knew at that point. He could be really cold-hearted. I mean, he got one guy, you know, he relates a. a 
a situation where he got a, a security guard fired where he could have easily avoided that. The guy, you know, did give him a hard time, but it wasn't, you know, you don't take revenge by killing the guy or something. And, and you know, I mean, he had really hurt the guy. When one of his friends committed suicide, he decided he would start a stand-up comedy routine, and he and part of it was that he, he made fun of his friend who killed himself. So you were drawn to the, the self-conflicting and ambiguous nature of, of this character. And one of the things I find really interesting is that at one point he claims to have a photographic memory. And yeah. at the other point he's complaining about having to memorize stuff. And I, you do this a lot in the, in, in the story. It's very interesting. Tell, why did this self-conflicting and amb- ambiguity appeal to you? I always try and figure people out. You know, when I meet them, you know, I, I always try and put them into a category or type them or something like that. And this guy, first of all, you know, was extremely difficult to put into a category. And second of all, he held some positions that I didn't, I didn't believe in. But I, I gave him, I give the guy credit, he, he made good arguments for them or about as good as he could. These were yeah. political arguments? Yeah, political. So because he's a young Republican, right? He are, that's well, he's a libertarian. That's like a little different than a Republican because they believe in being able to smoke grass and— uh, Legalization uh, of drugs. Yeah. They seem to have uh, take some of these positions to the extreme. And this is the shadow of Ayn Rand. hangs yeah, heavy yeah. over this work. Right, right. He, are, are you influenced by Ayn, Ayn Rand no, yourself? No, no, no. <laughs> no, I mean, and I, I guess she made her initial impact in the in the, in the early 1940s, at which time I wasn't, you know, paying any attention to what she was doing. You know, I was a baby. But when they, you know, when they had a revival of of interest in her, they wrote about her like like she was some kind of joke, and people always used to snicker or something when they'd hear her name. And he's like one of the very, very few people. I, I, I think he's maybe the only person I ever knew that took Ayn Rand seriously. But he would take up her positions and he would argue. And, you know, he'd do a credible job of, of, of backing up what she had said. I didn't accept the stuff, but I thought, this guy's got reasons. I was wondering how sincere is this guy. And he had done, a, he had done his homework. He had done a lot of thinking and a lot of reading. And I respected that, even if he didn't draw the same conclusions that I did. Gary Dumb did the art for this book. Yeah. And one of the things I found fascinating was that Michael Malice is always transparent. Is that, um, is that purposeful? And That's just part of Gary's style. You mean physically, like he, he looks like? He's, he's always drawn in lines. Yeah. He's never filled in. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, and other people are filled in, but never Michael Malice. Well, it could be because Michael Malice, I, I have to ask Gary about it. I, I know the characteristic you're talking about. It didn't occur to me to ask him why he did that. But he does do that with some other characters sometimes. It could have been because Michael Malice was, well, he drew him as having real light hair. Right. And he might have, and, and he's also, Michael Malice described himself as being real small physically. Right. So maybe he's trying to create some kind of a wraith-like character. I don't know. But I'd actually have to actually ask, ask Gary why he did that. I wanted to ask you, too, about The Quitter, which I loved. I thought it was beautifully done. It had a 
the look of that, the the artist there is Gary Haspiel or Dean Haspiel. Dean Haspiel. I'm sorry. The look and the feel of that work is very noir. It, it strikes me almost as as looking quite a bit. If somebody took all the many of the tropes of a 1940s detective movie in the look and feel of a 1940s detective movie and transposed them into the comic world, biographical comic world, you'd get the glitter. And there's a certain Beckettian as aspect, too. It's Samuel Beckett. When I read that book, all I could think of was the, the Beckett phrase, you know, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail better. Yeah. And, and this is, is this something that, that influenced you that you've come across? Um, okay, the the noir elements of the uh, of the illustration. That's what you're mainly right. describing. Um, that was, uh, you know, Dean Haspiel's specific solution to a problem I put to him. You know, I said in the past, Dean. Dean, I should mention this. He's the guy that hooked me up with. People that produ produced American Splendor. Mm -hmm. I made a lot of money from that, mm -hmm. and I wanted to pay him back. Uh -huh. So I asked him, "What can I do? You know that'll you know that'll pay you back?" And he said, "Write a long narrative, and let me do the illustration." Okay, that's fine. But what I I wanted to do was this real serious narrative, and Dean and I had just done kind of humorous stuff before, and mm -hmm. not. And we hadn't really worked together that much, and I thought that the work needed to have a more ser you know, serious uh, quality to it. So we talked about, just in general, about him doing something about it. Didn't hit on any solutions, but then he did hit on this style, which I thought was really good, and he got tremendous praise for it. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous, and and the story is is really compelling. It's a story you've told parts of before, but it's yeah. it's beautiful to find it all in one piece. And normally, you've explained you write kind of anecdotal pieces. Yeah, when when I was with with American Splendor, right. I didn't have the opportunity to write long ones like that. Mm -hmm. Now I do, and I'm availing myself of it. I, you see, there are two books that I've written that are. You Both know, Michael book, Malice and this. Yeah, are, our book length. I'm working on a. Uh, I'm finished actually with the script for a third one. A guy's doing the illustration for it. Is this a biographical, autobiographical? Uh, well, this is actually, this is something again that's that's sort of different. It's um, based on what I was told about the state of Macedonia, or the nation of Macedonia, by a a person who uh, went to Berkeley. Current day Macedonia. Yeah, current mm -hmm. day Macedonia. She was a political science major, and she was always ha being hassled by people because she was into peace studies, and they were saying, "Oh, war's inevitable. You know, you're just a wimp, and gonna have war no matter what. What do you? What's this peace studies baloney?" So um, she, you know, that goaded her into actually going to Macedonia and finding out why a war hadn't taken place between the Albanians, who were the minority population there, and the Macedonians. And I met her just before she was about to leave, and she told me about her project. You know, she was going to write a thesis mm -hmm. using that as the, the subject. And I said, well, could you do me a favor and take notes because I'm interested in that. And actually, see, there had been a, a precedent. There's a guy named Joe Sacco 
who actually was trained in college as a reporter, and he's a very, very bright guy and a very good reporter. He was able to develop an outstanding illustration style as well. And so, like, he's big on war. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, like he's like a left-to-center guy, but he, he always wants to do stuff about war and how the Americans bombed, you know, Dresden and stuff like that. And so when he, he did stuff about Yugoslavia, you know, namely about Bosnia. Bosnia, yeah. Yes. Uh, he, he put in a lot of violence. And the thing I wanted to do was to just have it be, you know, like with no violence. So in a, in a way, it was sort of inspired by Joe Sacco's work. And in a way, I tried to, um, I had a different end in mind. But anyway, that's another, that's another project I'm working on. Mm -hmm. And another project is that I'm working uh, on a, a book that's going to be about the history of SDS, you know, Students for Democratic Society. And then I'm working on another one about the Beat Generation. The SDS project and the Beat Generation project were not at, uh, originated by me, but the guy who did, you know, have the idea wanted me to work on them. So are these people so, at publishers? No, this guy, this guy would, you know, like he would, in both cases, for most, he would be like a like a head editor or something like that, mm -hmm. and he would like you know send out work for the SDS thing. What he was doing was sending me out these narratives that were written by SDS members in various parts of the country about you know what they were doing in 1968, and and uh, and and then he would turn around and send them to me. And asked me to, you know, break them down into a, a comic book script. Mm -hmm. So that those are a couple of other projects. I don't completely control those projects, but I was working on them. I had previously also worked on a book that this same guy did uh, about the Wobblies, who, uh, you know, are one of America's most radical uh, groups, and um, that that wound up being, you know, pretty well received and uh, led to this. So all these, these are, are continue to, bo to work in nonfiction biography. Yeah, right. I find it interesting that you refer to it as comic book instead of going for the more uh, auspicious sounding graphic novel. Well, for one thing, the term graphic novel is incorrect. I mean, to use it incorrectly, I mean, they use it about my stuff, but my stuff isn't fiction, so how could it be a, a novel? Of any kind, and for another th thing, I I mean you know, I mean I'm not a I'm not ashamed of comic books origins, you know. So I, it doesn't bother me to refer. To, that's what they're, they're people generally know what you're talking about when you talk about a comic book. So that's fine, you know. I'm not I'm not trying to spiff it up. Let's get back a little bit to the quitter, which I I I really loved. There one of the themes in there was this idea of forces working against you, insurmountable forces. It, growing up, The Quitter, which is a story of, of your childhood, essentially, yeah. uh, ends about the time you got going into the, your working on your comic books. You felt surrounded in your youth by insurmountable forces and forces working against you. Conspiracies? Tell well, us a little I, I bit about your feelings. I wouldn't put it in a... I wouldn't call them conspiracies, but I did. I I did find myself con, con, confronted with my own 
obsessive compulsive behavior which caused me to want to succeed so badly that any time I was doing something that was worth something to me and, 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 I, and I had a little setback, I would quit the thing because I couldn't stand the pain of contemplating not succeeding, you know. So that, that's... And you, you found your first actual success in the reviewing. Well, I mean, I, or was I, it? I just described, you know, it's like you know, when I, I was in the street fighting and stuff like that. That was a, kind of a success, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, before that, you know, I got some success from ath athletic uh, achievements. And also, I, I was a good student, but I didn't, you know, I mean, that wasn't considered to be anything to be proud of by my peers, so I didn't make a big deal out of that. One of the things that, that persists to this day in your comics is the this worrying about the future. Yeah. And you're at the pinnacle of success, the, the height, the, I mean, American splendor be damned, you're, you're in American dream territory at this point. Um, when when they when they made a ma major motion picture about you, that's that, what a lot of people think. That not only You're not alone. <laughs> that not only are the, that you are portrayed in, but you get to star in as well. This is something. So why do I bitch so much? Yes. What's, what's with the whinging? Well, it's because I I just feel I still feel like you know beleaguered and surrounded and like, you know, if my book stops selling, I'm in real trouble. I, I live on a, a a pension from the government plus you know social some some money I get from social security and that's not enough to support my wife and I and if uh, and I haven't been used to you know commercial success in comics but now I've got you know I've got to have it to be able to make the extra money I need to live the way I want to live and. Uh, I'm real scared that I won't be able to pull it off. That, I mean, I think I can keep on writing good things, but whether the public, you know, accepts them or not, or pays for them, that's out of my hands, and that scares me. So, well, that's what I complain about. I complain about the fact that I'm afraid that I'm gonna, my luck's going to change. Granted, yes, I'm in a pretty good position now, especially compared to where I was. We've been speaking with Harvey Picard, who's in a great position. He's just published two wonderful books, Ego and Hubris, The Michael Malice Story, and The Quitter. Thanks for speaking with us, Harvey. My pleasure. It was great. From the Agony Column Podcast, I'm Rick Kleffel. You've just heard the second part of my two-part conversation with comic book legend Harvey Picard. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.